Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and brings impact to your life. Enjoy the message. So, uh, I'm going to jump right in uh, to, our, to our study today, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Colossians um, this morning, and specifically chapter number one is where we're going to camp out for a bit um, and I think, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of books in the Bible. I think it's very important that you kind of understand uh, what the background is, what's going on. That's why I love study Bibles so much uh, is because there's sort of this little one pager right before you go into a book that gives you some bullet point highlights, right, of where we are at, where, what is going on uh, historically, um, what is happening? What is the church up against? What is Paul or the writer addressing? Uh, of course, we know the ultimate author is God himself, um, you know, moving upon holy men to, to write. And so I think when you look at the book of Colossians, um, I think it's important for us to understand, uh, in order for us to un- understand Colossians, we have to really go back and understand uh, Rome, and if you, if you, so this is going to be kind of a little history lesson in the beginning. Stay with me if you're not a history buff or anything like that. I, history was my favorite subject uh, growing up in, in school. Um, it always captivated me. So just a little bit of a history lesson to, to get started, but we have to go back and we have to understand Rome. And if you don't understand Rome beyond a documentary series on YouTube, you don't really quite understand the book of Colossians. So Let's very quickly do a, a, just a brief snapshot of the Roman Empire um, and, and, uh, and, and see what we come up with. But, you know, before Rome and since Rome, we've never seen anything quite like Rome. And if you study this thing historically, we've never seen anything like it. In, it, in its pinnacle... In its heyday, it is 6,700 kilometers or 4,200 miles wide. Now, to put that in perspective, the United States of America from sea to shining sea is nearly 3,000 miles. So this is a massive area from, from India to Europe. This is a massive place. And on top of that, they ruled the known world for 1,500 years. 1,500 years. Now, this past July, turned 247 years old. So Rome rules the world for 1,500 years. And because of that longevity, they have impacted the modern world like you wouldn't believe. There are a few main ways that the Roman Empire not only transformed the world as they knew it, but but kind of transformed even the world as we know it. Think about uh, the Roman roads, for example. The first Roman road was built in 312 BC. By the second century, there's over 50,000 miles of roads in Rome, all leading to Rome, right? Here's what's amazing about those roads that were built 2,000 years ago. Some of them to this day, we are still using them, even some bridges. So they did it faster. They did it longer than we're able to do now. 
I mean, they've been working on I-57 my whole life and still no end in sight, okay? There, there are a, there's a lot of things that happen with, with the Roman roads in regard to ease of commerce, trade, and, and all kinds of those things. But what it did more than anything else is it shrank the world. It created a world in which cultures, ethnicity, food, and religion began to boil together. And you began to see the first forms of syncretism occurring in the world. There was this mixing that began to take place. And let me help you out and kind of understand what I'm talking about. Mexican food here is not Mexican food. It's different. It's, it's what we would call Tex-Mex, right? So if you and I this afternoon hopped on a plane and we flew to, let's say, Southern California, we would go to a Mexican restaurant, you would get there and you would be like, there's something wrong with this salsa. It's gone bad. It's not gone bad. It's just onion-based, all right? It's just different than what you and I have here. They make it completely different. And because what we're used to is Tex-Mex, not truly Mexican food. So this, there's these two cultures that are colliding, right? Basically, what ends up happening is you have a melting pot or a boiling pot where multiple cultures are colliding and you get something new. And guess what? It was the Roman roads that created that at a massive, massive level. Whereas before, if you do your research, study was restricted or travel was restricted. It was restricted to those who were only courageous enough or wealthy enough. Now you have this road system where anybody can travel. And so what this did is it shrank the world. It did for them what the internet has kind of done for us. You can right now Google almost any image you want and see it on your phone, any image. You can pull up live shots. You can pull up on Google Earth and see what your home looked like the last time Google drove around it and, and all sorts of stuff. You can, you can get that from wherever, which by the way, has, has created a great deal of personality disorder. I mean, since we, since we can get everything at our fingertips right now, there is this insatiable demand for information to have it right now. And if we, if we have to wade through anything, if we have to work for it, what happens? We tend to get frustrated. If information is delayed, we feel like somebody is twisting the information, you know, somebody's hiding the information and, and trying to change it, and we're just turning into a bunch of conspiracy theorists right now. And I, I get it, you know, there are some stuff, we can have a conversation, a one-off, but there, there's, this, there's a conspiracy behind it all, right? Because we couldn't get the information fast enough. You know what did that to us? The internet did that to us. And we gotta learn sometimes to unplug. We got to learn to unplug for a bit. We got to take a Sabbath, as we talked about last week, and, and just unplug. It's okay to do that. But that's what the Roman roads did for them. It created an unreal amount of access to other cultures, 
other ideas, to other temples, to other bits of architecture, to new kinds of food. It shrank the world. Another thing that Rome really did is it brought about what is known as uh, Roman peace, the idea of Roman peace. And it's a really interesting idea because if you were an enemy of Rome or if you were on the outskirts of Rome or you were a, a member of a legion of Rome's army, right, there wasn't a lot of peace for you. In fact, it was an extremely violent 1,500 years, but inside the confines of the empire, it was unbelievably peaceful. There were these little skirmishes here and there, but Roman rule did a great job of keeping order. Really, the only significant uprising that you'll see in the 1,500 years of Roman empire or Roman history is in 69 AD after the death of Nero. They call it the year of the four emperors. Now, we don't really have time to divulge into that this morning. But what I'm trying to show you is that it's, it's, it's an extremely peaceful 1,500 years inside the walls. Outside, there you have these little skirmishes here and there. That's another thing that you can learn from the Roman Empire. Another thing is, is uh, you can see uh, probably the most residue of in, in our modern world is the Roman law. Roman rulers did a phenomenal job of creating systems. And this goes back to Roman peace. Because if, if people feel like they're heard, if people feel like they're cared for, they get justice, uh, and they get justice, they don't have a tendency to rise up against their government. It's when they feel there's no justice and there is no hope that often tends to lead to rebellion. And so Rome did a fascinating job of staying, of, of not staying so strict. They had rigid rules, but creating flexibility within their rules of humanity. So, so basically, they would judge actions, but they wouldn't judge intent. Roman philosophy was that there will be eyewitnesses to words and actions. There will not be eyewitnesses to intention. So Rome would never do something like a, um, like a hate crime law because that would be a law that is predicated on or built on an intention, not an action. And Rome would say, we, we already have a, a, a law on the books against murder, so we're not going to judge the intent of a man's heart because that puts us in dangerous water. But what we will do is we will judge his action. And what this did is this created, again, a great deal of peace in the Roman Empire. The world has never seen anything like this up until this point. The world up until this point was an extremely dark place, a very violent and hostile, horrible place. And Rome, to some degree, was able to kind of bring a little light into the picture. Now, there are going to be a couple problems in Colossians that Paul is going to deal with. Number one, he's kind of going to get after the Roman Empire a little bit. He's going to get after it and he's going to say, hey, Rome is not your hope. Your hope is not the Roman Empire. It's not what Rome can, can bring. And he's also going to subversively try 
uh, and, and whittle away uh, at the foundation of that. And, and, and then he's going to also address what I mentioned earlier, this syncretism. Now, here's what that is. Basically, with the boiling pot of humanity that's occurring, this world looks very much like our world does right now, where the world shrank. And so here's what's happening. You have, you have the Colossians. They're saying, yes, Jesus. Jesus is our main man. We believe in him. We love him. But my next door neighbor is a Jewish mystic. And he prays so much more than I do. And so I'm going to borrow a little bit of his stuff. And Jesus is still my main guy but I'm going to borrow a little bit of Jewish mysticism here, okay? And then you have this other guy who, you know, who has a neighbor who is a druid, and outside of some weird animal stuff that I've seen at night, he still loves his wife, uh, and he loves his family, so I'm going to borrow a little bit from this, and Jesus is still my main guy, but I'm going to create something new. And Paul's going to come in, he's going to undermine that and he's going to attack it. Now, here's the best news for you and I today. We're 2,000 years removed from this. So we get to find out whether Paul is a liar or not. We get to look at it and say, was Rome the light or was Jesus the light? Like, who won? Was it Rome or was it Christ? Now, this isn't my message this morning, but this is the example I'll give you. Rome exhibited it its power by doing what? Crucifying people to show their strength. Christ exhibits power by being crucified and taking on the sins of the world. They both use the cross to wield their power. And to this day, friends, there's only one of those that remains strong and a vibrant part of reality. There's only one that still has the same life-changing power, and that's the cross on Calvary's hill. So, so Paul's going to attack these two problems. He's going to tag it throughout his letter, but for today, he's going to be very encouraging to the church in Colossians. Let's look at it, Colossians 1. We're going to pick it up in verse number 3. Now, this first little phrase is going to be unbelievably important, and we're going to come back to it at the end. I'm going to ask you a question. Who is it that we always thank? We sang it this morning. We always thank God, right? Paul, in verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. As ye learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. The title of my message today is Where is Your Hope? Where is your hope? Here's just a little bit of trivia for you. 
Paul had never met the men and women at the church in Colossus. Never met them. They were converted through the ministry of Epaphras, who was converted in Paul's ministry at Ephesus. So Paul is preaching in Ephesus. Epaphras, tongue twister, is converted. He loves his people back in Colossus. He travels back. He preaches the gospel. He plants a church. And so right now we have Paul in, is in prison, and we're going to see as we get into the letter, as you get in the letter, he wants to come meet them, but up until this point, he hasn't met them. But here's, here's what he's heard. Look at verse number four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, Here's one of my first little notices here. In the New Testament, there is an inseparable link between trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving the saints. There is an inseparable link between those two. First John would say it this way, if a man loves God but hates his brother, he lies and the truth is not in him. Church, there is an inseparable link between trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving the body of believers. I love this quote that I ran across. It says this, no man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. I love that quote because you can't love God and hate the church. You just can't do it. And there is sort of this this new age idea that's floating around right now, a lot of deconstructing Christians. Well, I love Jesus, I don't love the church. Well, the Bible would call you a liar. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that we look out, that, that, that we look out at, at, at the evangelical scene and approve of everything that's going on on the evangelical front. In fact, a lot of it is good comedy. And by good comedy, I mean it's heartbreaking and it's sad. But this idea that you can love God and not have a relationship with other believers is an unbiblical hatching of your own imagination. It's not how it works. And he says here that that faith, their faith is public and that, that he's heard of it from Epaphras, who's come to visit him in, in prison, and others. As you get into the letter, you'll see their faith is evident, and their love for one another is evident. And, and he's going to explain why they love one another, why they, why they love the gospel. He says this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Why do they love their brothers and sisters? This is the great answer to the question. They love the brethren because their hope is in heaven. That's what their hope is. I'm gonna say this, and it's not easy, and I get it. I might lose some of you. But unless the rapture takes place, there's not a single one of us getting out of here alive. I understand no one in here wants to think that. 
No one wants to dwell on that or even consider that. Everyone in this room thinks they're going to live to be 90, 95 years old and die in their sleep, despite the fact that is simply not true. If you're writing less or writing notes, you're like, my word, where is, where's the encouragement? <laughs> now, with that said, now that's reality. I know we all know that. And that, my point of my message is not to dwell on that. I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And just with that in mind, here's my question. Where have you put your hope? Since what I just said to you is coming for you and it's coming for all of us, where have you put your hope? You know where the bulk of humanity has put their hope in? I'm a good person. I'm a good, I'm a good man. I'm a good lady. And my question to them, my response to them has always been the same. Compared to what? Because if you're a thinker on any level, you've got to admit that that's somewhat of a silly game. So God is just going to give you whatever the afterlife holds in regards to goodness because you're not the schmuck that your neighbor is? That's where you're going to push all your chips in at? You're pushing all your chips into, I love my wife better than my neighbor does. I take care of my kids better than my neighbor does. Folks, you know what the scary part of the Bible is? It's not that God judges our wickedness. It's that he sees our righteousness as filthy rags. Compared, compared to the holiness of God, it's our goodness that falls short every time. It's, it's, it's not just our wickedness that condemns us. It's our goodness. See, you see why we need the cross so badly? You see why we need Christ Jesus and what he, because all of our righteous acts are filthy before him. And this is the weight of it. So my question is, where is your hope? Where are you putting it? Is it in living as well as you can live the one life that you've been given? Because that's, friend, that is a monumental roll of the dice if there is any such thing as the afterlife. So where is your hope? Where are you putting it? Are you putting it in your own goodness? I hope not because your goodness will fall short. It will fail you. I think if, if we'd all just stop and breathe for a moment, I think we'd figure that out. You know where a lot of other people try to, try to put it, their hope? They try to put it in the, the you know, that, that get all that you can mindset. You know, that carpe diem, seize the day. You've got one life. Live it to the fullest. Do all that you can. You've got just this one life. You know that kind of idea. I think, once again, it just philosophically falls flat. And if you don't believe me, check out the book of Ecclesiastes. Check it out. Solomon says, look, I'm a king. I'm a wealthy man. I'm wealthier than you've ever been. I've done all these things. I've partied so big that the parties in my house would require us to kill a hundred cattle to feed everyone. 
I, 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 I've smoked a couple pork shoulders before, three to three at one time. I'm not saying that none of us, I know you guys have thrown some big bonfires before that have been fun, but I'm just saying in comparison to what Solomon threw, it's just a little ghetto party. It's just, a, it, it's sad. It's sad in comparison to what Solomon did. He planted forests, forests, and he had to build lakes to feed those that to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be able to see the pools of Solomon that fed those forests. I'm not saying that you haven't built some stuff in your day that are nice. I'm not saying you didn't landscape your front yard that where you got the yard of the month, you know, banner or something like that. I'm not saying that you didn't do a good job. I'm just saying compared to Solomon, your little blue star juniper is sad in comparison to what he did. And on and on and on we could go in regards to wealth and women and power and business. And Solomon goes far beyond what any of us are going to ever be able to do. And you know what? At the end of it all, he says this, it doesn't work. It's meaningless. It doesn't satisfy the soul. I mean, and according to Ecclesiastes, he went to both spectrums. He went high life. He had caviar and he had truffles. He went the low end. He had mac and cheese and hot dogs. And I'm talking boiled hot dogs, not grilled hot dogs. That's a different, that's a different arena. So Solomon does both because you know what? The rich will say, oh, if my life was just more simple and I didn't have to manage all this wealth and the poor would go, oh, if I could just have some more wealth and get what I needed, then I would be satisfied. And Solomon says, no, 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 neither. I did both and neither works. So the idea is going to be dismantled in the book of Ecclesiastes. And again, my question to you again, the title of my message, where is your hope? Where is it? Where are you putting all of your chips when it comes to life and eternity and your relationship with God? Where are you putting those things? Another thought to point out, and this is such a beautiful thing to see in this text. In verse number seven of Paphras, he goes to Ephesus, which is a major metropolitan area about 12 miles from the Colossians and he hears Paul preach. His life is transformed by the gospel and he heads back to the Colossians and begins to preach and teach among the Colossians. Listen to what he says. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, be our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Go back to verse five. Here's what he says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Who did it come from? It came from Epaphras. Who did he learn it from? He learned it from Paul. Now watch this. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. So here's Paul's point. The gospel is working wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, 
People are believing and people are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I get it. The Old Testament is filled with a lot of rules and regulations on on what worship looks like. The New Testament is almost completely silent when it comes to it. And I think that I think there are two chapters in the whole New Testament that say this is what orderly worship looks like. I know there's a spot for all of our worship, but what, what I'm trying to be, I think the reason is being the New Testament is a missionary handbook. It plugs in to any culture anywhere in the world. It is a missionary handbook. It fits into every culture everywhere. Christianity in regards to ethnicity is not ethnocentric. It's just not. It's not just one culture. It's not just one race. It spreads across cultures. It spreads across countries. Even honestly, it spreads across across belief systems. So this thing works everywhere. And Paul, he's talking about it in the first century. And here's my favorite part. One of my favorite things about all of this is that the Christian faith is not some kind of blind faith where we cross our fingers and we just hope we're right. It's historically informed. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and you've got God saying, I'm going to flood the earth with the glory of my name. Among every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth, there will be a representation. And then you start to watch it play out and we're watching it happen. Here we are in 2023 and you can see it. There are Christians in China. There are Christians in Turkey There are Christians in Iraq. There are Christians in Brazil. There are Christians in Africa. It's happening. It's absolutely happening. And then the other thing to remember is that, how long has Landmark been here? 70 years. 70 years ago. And guess what? We're still here, but that's all that it is. This has been going on long before 70 years. And if Christ tarries, it's going to go on long after us. And that's, 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 that's hard for us because every generation believes that they're, they live at this, at the pinnacle of civilization. They believed it in the, in the forties. I mean, think about all the stuff that they were figuring out in the forties. They, they're finding all sorts of new technology and they're like, how much farther does it go? How much farther can we go? I'll show you. It's called an iPhone. It's called an iPad. It's called this technology and all the bells and whistles that we have, okay? I'll show you how much farther we can go. And listen, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. If the Lord tarries, technology is just going to continue to press and move forward. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's going to continue Our role is to play our part well. But where I gain a lot of confidence to look back and see how the gospel transformed lives and cultures for centuries and lives and cultures in some of the darkest times. Because here's the thing. It's going to go bad for Rome. 
Sorry if that ruins your documentary that you're right in the middle of, but it will go bad for Rome. I know some of you are like, oh man, the gladiator did it all for nothing. Yes, he gave his life for nothing. It's very sad. It's sad to think about. But to go back to the beginning of Colossians, and we're just really digging, scratching to the surface of this letter to the Colossians. We're seeing how Paul started it. I'm gonna take you back to the, to the, to the beginning. Because I, I, I believe there's a, a great deal of people, maybe even represented here today, that are struggling in their faith. You want faith, but you just don't have it. You want to believe, but you just don't. And I want to throw this out to you. Notice that for all the encouragement Paul gives to the Colossians, he doesn't thank them or praise them for any of it. He doesn't say, oh, I want to thank you guys for loving each other so well. I want to thank you guys and praise you guys for loving the gospel. And I want to thank you and praise you for this. He doesn't do that. Paul says, I thank God. And the reason I want to point that out to you is because faith is not something that you simply just muster up. If you can simply muster it, then it's yours and you can own it and you can walk with a sort of sense of pride. Hey, this is my faith. I did this. But since you can't do that, and since it's not yours to just turn on and off, guess what, friend? You and I are dependent upon God so that when he grants it, the glory is his. There is no such thing as an arrogant Christian who understands biblically what being a Christian is. Those two things cannot grow in the same dish. It's impossible. By grace, you are saved through faith. And even that faith to believe in that grace is given to you and I by God so that none of us can boast about it. Faith comes from God. Faith is given by God. So what does that mean, Bryce? Here's what it means. If you keep coming back and you keep searching and you don't know why, if you're drawn and you want faith, but you just don't know why it won't turn on for you, friend, you are being wooed by the creator of the universe. God is drawing you. And so here's what I would encourage you. Stop and breathe for a moment. Stop being so frustrated. Keep pressing in. Keep asking your questions and dive a little bit deeper. Get involved here at the church on some level. Join a small group this fall. Get in community and see that we're not perfect people. And that we're flawed and that we still need the gospel just as much as the day we were converted. And then let the Lord ignite. Let the Lord ignite it when the Lord wants to ignite it. But you press in and you ask. My kids, I'll ask our music to come. My, my kids will ask us questions all the time about the Bible. And uh, I love it. I love it when they, I love it when they ask questions. I love it when they're, when they're curious, 
I think some of the most successful people on planet Earth today just been curious people. And so our kids will ask us questions and, and uh, you know, they'll go over to Super Church or Wednesday night and they'll hear a lesson. They'll come home and they'll, they'll ask us, what does this mean? Or, you know, what is, uh, you know, is that really, that really happened? You know, I don't. And they have questions, right? And as a little kid, they're just, you know, it's cool stories and it's, but here's what I know is that there will come a day where they will probably not quite fully understand something. And me being further down the road than them might even have the same question. If you're in here today and you have questions, I just want to tell you it's okay. There were people in the Bible that dealt with the same thing. You remember one time Jesus asked a lame man, he said, do you believe that I can heal you? And the man said, I, I do believe, but, but help my unbelief. Even men in the Bible at times have difficulty believing what Jesus is saying. But here's what happened. They found themselves in that spot. They didn't turn off the brain. They didn't check out. They asked for help. Hey, help my unbelief. Help me believe. And so I don't want Easton, I don't want Bennett, I don't want Reddick, I don't want any of us to just blindly go, I believe, I want you to press in and then to pray and to humble yourself before the Lord and go, help me. Open up my mind, open up my heart, give me faith. And then let the Lord work so that he gets the glory in the end. And he gets the praise when he does it, because trust me, he'll do it. Versus us going, I did these things and I mustered the faith. Friend, that's going to turn you really into the other end of things. That doesn't help us either. That term fundamentalist, and I don't mean the fundamentalist in a good, happy fundamentals of faith way. I mean fundamentalist in an arrogant, closed-minded, lacking in grace, lacking in patience, lacking in mercy, lacking in compassion. That, that's kind of how I'm using that, how they go, I saved myself. You should do it for yourself. That doesn't help anything. But if we can humble ourselves, if we can humble ourselves before the Lord and just go, God, help me. God, I'm frustrated here. I'm angry. I don't get this. I don't understand this. I, I, I want to surrender this part of my life, but I just can't. If we can be honest, how refreshing is it that, that we don't have to pretend But here's the crux in it all. Would you stand with me this morning? 
Here's the crux in it all. God already knows. You haven't tricked him. For those of you with kids, you know, you remember the first time that you tried to teach your kids hide and go seek and they just lay in the floor and they put their hands over their eyes and, and, and they close their eyes because they can't see you and you can't see them. That's how they're thinking, right? That's how some of us think spiritually sometimes. You're just like, come and find me. Come and find me. You're on the living room floor. And you're talking to me. So God already knows. God already knows your heart. I think to confess it will be healing to you and not surprising to God. It's a great idea just not to play games. He, he knows already. And hear me, you're not going to upset him by confessing what he already knows. In fact, he says it in his word, Psalms 51, that the broken and contrite spirit, he'll never despise. If that's not the best news in the universe, I don't know what is. So press in. Confess, be honest, ask for faith, ask for the Lord to ignite your heart. I don't think you're going to get all of your questions answered before you believe. That was definitely not the case for me. I, 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 I've, I've met very few people that said, once all my questions were answered, then I believe. No, no, I haven't met that person yet. If that's you, let's connect after church because you would be the first one. But for a great deal of us, we start to have question answered and then God ignites it. And we continue to seek our answers and we're after we're converted, but get involved, get plugged in, get keep fighting the good fight. Don't give up. Don't, don't get frustrated. Be patient. Ask for faith. Ask for belief. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those that give generously to this ministry. If you would like more information, please visit our website at landmarkapostolicchurch.net. But have a great day and God bless.